God's vision for the church. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. You know, the Bible is an amazing book. More accurately, the Bible is an amazing collection of books. There are 66 in all in there. Um, Although, to be fair, some of those, like 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, were actually one book, but it it wouldn't fit on a scroll, so they cut it in half and did it in two. That's why we have 1 and 2 Samuel. In fact, all the books in the Old Testament where there's a 1 and 2, that's that's why we have them. I've heard it said, and it's probably true, you won't find God in the Bible. You'll find his footprints. You'll find where he's walked through history, where he's touched lives. And that's true, true, because God is here and now. He was with them then, and he is with us now. So in a sense, that, that's right. But as you read the Bible, as you get to know it, you slowly realise you've been getting to know God. You've been getting to know more about him, who he is. And God with us now. God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. By his spirit, reveals more of himself. Our primary revelation, the primary way we learn about God, is in Jesus. And the primary way we learn about Jesus comes from the Bible. What he did, what he said. And the Holy Spirit revealing that more and more in our lives, what it means. One student, coming up to an exam time, asked an older group of Christians that he knew to pray for his exams the next day. He was really quite nervous about them. And of course, being an older group of Christians, they started asking him lots of questions. What was he studying? What was he doing? And how was things going? And it actually got to the point where it was quite embarrassing and he had to admit that he hadn't actually done all the coursework, nor had he revised for the exam the next day. You know, it's amazing how many Christians ask God for guidance and direction and haven't actually read his word. And I don't mean study it deeply theologically or um, sit down and try and read it through from beginning to end in one go, but just over time, spending time with God, reading his word, in a version that's easy for you to read, whatever that is. Some people I know will say that they're not big readers, they're not, they're not good at that sort of thing. And it, it is a big book, it can be a bit intimidating to look at it. Um, I wouldn't suggest you start at the beginning and just plough through. But did you know that the New Testament contains less words than the average Sunday supplement a Sunday newspaper. And the Old Testament is only about three or four times the size of the New Testament. That's a month of newspapers, of Sunday newspapers. That's about the size of the Bible. I had a friend when I was in school, well, actually, just after I'd left school. He was a, he was a year or so younger than me. He couldn't read. I, I mean that really. He, well, he, he could read very basic words and... Um, struggle with, with you know, simple sentences and stuff. Um, we both became Christians at about the same time, me just after I'd left school, and, and him while he was still at school. Someone gave him a copy of the Living Bible, and he started to read it. 
I mean, really read it. He found he could read it. He could understand it. Now, obviously, that was God helping him in some way and changing him. But then he found he could read other stuff. But God really helped him. Uh, within a few months, this guy, this young chap, was leading Bible studies at lunchtimes in school and inviting teachers. It's amazing what God can do if you give him a chance. It's amazing what the Bible says. It's also quite amazing what people think the Bible says that it doesn't. And I thought it'd be quite fun to look at some of these myth conceptions, as I've called them. Sue and I discussed how we should write that. We came up with a hyphen in the middle, we weren't sure. Um, myth conceptions from the Bible. Someone was asked why they don't believe in the Bible, and they said, well, it contradicts itself so much. What do you mean? Well, take Proverbs, for instance. Many hands make light work. Too many cooks spoil the broth. I'm sure you know that neither of those come from the book of Proverbs in the Bible. And thank God that nowhere in the Bible does it say God helps those who help themselves. A lot of people think it does. God helps the weary and the weak. That's what the Bible says. What about the Garden of Eden? You know, the story with the apple. Doesn't mention an apple. Read it. It just says a fruit. How about the Christmas story? You probably know that there was no little drummer boy standing in the snow outside the stable. There was no snow. What might surprise you more, read the accounts in the New Testament, no mention of a stable. It's no stable. I'm not saying there wasn't one, but it doesn't mention it in the Bible. The three kings who came to see Jesus, well, actually, it never says they're kings, they're wise men, nor does it say there were three of them. There was certainly more than one because it's plural, and they gave three gifts, so people just assumed there were three of them. That's become the tradition. How about the angels singing and proclaiming? Someone told me this recently, and I didn't believe them, and I looked it up and checked, and it's true. Nowhere in the entire Bible do angels ever sing. Not once is an angel described as singing. They say, they proclaim. Not once does it say they sing. Maybe they do. Maybe they hum a bit on the side, I don't know. But it doesn't ever say that. Nor do they have wings. I'm sorry, I hope I'm not ruining all your Christmas pictures that you have here. <laughs> angels don't have wings. Not once in the Bible is an angel described as having wings. Some creatures are. They're always called cherubim or seraphim. They have wings. Angels don't. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people, for men. That would be rather hard if you had dirty great wings on your back. There's another widely held belief, a myth, about the Bible. And that's that it ends with a description of heaven. It doesn't. But Nigel, we just heard Alan read that description, you're going to say. 
I'm sorry, but it's not a description of heaven. And I've got a pretty watertight, deeply theological reason for saying that. It actually tells you what it's a description of, and it's not heaven. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's the bride of the Lamb. The bride of Christ, which as you probably know, refers to the church. This is a picture of the church. This picture in Revelation. It's a picture of us. For those who might be a little disappointed that it's not a picture of a place that we're going to go and live in, I'd like to read you a story from this book that a friend at work lent me. A group of geography students studied the seven wonders of the world. At the end of the section, the students were asked to list what they considered to be the seven wonders of the world. Though there was some disagreement, the following got the most votes. One, Egypt's Great Pyramid. Two, the Taj Mahal. Three, the Grand Canyon. Four, the Panama Canal. Five, the Empire State Building. Six, St. Peter's Basilica. Seven, China's Great Wall. While gathering the votes, the teacher noted that one student, a quiet girl, hadn't turned in her paper yet. So he asked the girl, if she was having trouble with her list. The quiet girl replied, yes, a little. I couldn't quite make up my mind because there were so many. The teacher said, well, tell us what you have and maybe we can help. The girl hesitated and then read, I think the seven wonders of the world are one, to touch, two, to taste, three, to see, four, to hear. She hesitated a little and then added, five, to run, six, to laugh, seven, and to love. It's very easy to be impressed by buildings. Our annex here, it's a great building, it's a really good building. I don't think it would quite make the top seven there, maybe eight or nine, you know, but um, it's not up there. But as I know Simon would say, it's not the building that's important. It's what happens in it and how God uses it, what God does through it. People whose lives will be touched people who will see, people who will know they're loved. That's the important thing. And in the same way, the picture in Revelation, 
a description of a place isn't nearly as important as what it represents. Where did it all start? This picture, this wonder of the new Jerusalem. It started in Eden. Before the incident with the apple, sorry, fruit. Before the incident with the fruit, God and man walked together in the same garden. They met. They talked together. And then the fall. Then they disobeyed God. They turned on him. The the one thing he'd asked them not to do, they did. And they were expelled from the garden. They were expelled from God's presence. Out of Eden. It's not what God wanted. God doesn't want to push people away. Skip ahead in the Bible. Come to Genesis. Abraham. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. This is God speaking. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's God's intent. Not to push people away, but to bless them. To draw them to him. And he starts off with a plan through Abraham to create a great nation. Later, the people are in exile. They do become a great people. But they're enslaved in Egypt. And God uses Moses to bring them out. And he makes some extraordinary promises to them. Exodus 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, God says. And I will dwell among them. Think about that. This is God, almighty God, promising this ragtag bunch of nomads. I will live among you. This is God's plan. This is what he wants to do. A little later it says, telling them to make a tent, make a tabernacle, a sign of his presence. Then, when they've done that, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He says says who he is several times. He's saying, this is God talking. The whole reason, the entire reason for this people, for bringing them out of Egypt, is so that I can live among them. That's his entire plan. But he's a holy God. And we're an unholy people. And the Israelites were an unholy people. And there's a problem. To get near to God had to be all sorts of purification rituals and sacrifices. And God is in the tent and later the temple, at least symbolically. God's everywhere. But but among the people of Israel... And there's still this degree of separation. And you couldn't just wander into God's presence. Times people tried it and holy fire devoured them. It's, uh, or, or some other thing happened. God is holy and God is separate. And man is sinful. And, and they can't coexist. God loves to dwell among people. He wants people. But there's that separation. And we just celebrated Easter, of course. 
We've just celebrated Easter, and that's what Easter is all about. That's separation. Jesus' death becomes a sacrifice for us. Instead of all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, instead of all those elaborate rituals and cleansings, a once and for all sacrifice, God in Jesus gives himself. Jesus paid the price so that we could come to him. And do you notice what happened? As it happened, as Jesus cried in triumph, it is finished. It's complete. I have done it. As he breathed his last and dismissed his spirit, God left that holy box. God left that temple so fast to be among people. He left there at such a rate, at the first opportunity, the curtain was torn from top to bottom as he left. God wants to dwell among people. It's not a case of us making our way to him. It's a case of him coming to us. It always has been. It always will be. Jesus said to Simon, the disciple, I tell you, you're Peter. His name was Simon. Jesus says, no, you're Peter, uh, which is the word for rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. You're going to be a brick. And on this rock, this brick, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, hell itself, will not overcome it. All the sin in the world, all the evil will not overcome what I intend to do, said Jesus. And Peter, you, and the apostles are going to be bricks. You're going to be a foundation for what I'm going to do. This is God's intent. A hell-defying church of people that he can dwell among. If you've got a few Bibles in front of you, and... um, you want to look through. I'm going to quickly whip through. I just noticed the time. I'm wondering if some people are going to arrive. It's an hour after we started. But no, it looks like everyone remembered. Well done. I'm quickly going to whip through that passage in Revelation that we had read to us. Um, it's Revelation 21, verse 9. Follow along if you like. Uh, it's on page 120, well, sorry, 1,249 of the Bibles that are there. If you've got your own, you'll have to look it up. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God. The bride, the church, every person who puts their faith in God, from Abel through to Abraham, to the disciples, to you, to me, to every Christian who's yet to come to him. Excuse me, sorry. And it comes down from heaven 
out of heaven. It's not heaven itself, it comes out of heaven. And it's from God, it's his plan, it's his intent. This is what he wants, this is God's vision. It's how God sees the church. It shone, verse 11, it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. That's how God sees you and me. That's how God sees us together. Amazing, isn't it? Shining with the glory of God. Twelve. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. High walls. Strong. Strongly defended. They used to build walls around cities in those days to defend them. A place of safety. Twelve gates. Twelve angels. Twelve tribes. There were twelve sons of Israel. Twelve disciples. In the Bible, numbers are often symbolic. And twelve is one of those symbolic numbers. It speaks, to use maybe a technical term, of God's elective purposes of God's choosing, of God's planning, God's deciding, this is what I am doing. Twelve. And the roots of the church, the gates, twelve tribes of Israel, it goes right back into the Old Testament. It's not just now. It's the whole plan of God. Verses 13. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. That's the disciples again. Three and four are both words that speak of completion, of being finished, of everything. Everything completion type thing, complete as well as completion, finishing. Jesus in the tomb for three days. Jonah in the whale for three days. The Trinity, three, completion. God. Four Gospels. The complete story. And again, 12 foundations. Remember Peter? One of those foundation stones of the church. Symbolically, obviously. But that's, that's what Jesus had said to Peter. Their work, their teaching, the apostles, a foundation for the church. Basically, the New Testament is how we get their work and their teaching today, and the church that's grown from what they did. Reminder of the importance of the Bible again. 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it is wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as high and wide as it was long. Um, Again, symbolic numbers. Some Bibles translate what 12,000 stadia was into modern measurements. But when you do that, you miss the point. It was the symbolic numbers. 
Um, 12. Uh, God measures it, first of all. He has the measure of the church. He knows it. He knows all about it. He's got the blueprints. It's his plan. 12,000 stadia. 12. Again, God's choosing, God's plan, his elective purpose. Now, multiplying by a thousand was the sort of thing that, that we do today when we say, you've probably never heard this said to you, but if I've told you once, I've told you a million times. One or two of you have, I can tell. Yeah. You don't literally mean million, do you? You just mean a really big number, an indefinitely big number. And, and that's exactly what they meant in those days when they multiplied the number by a thousand. So it's God's elective purpose, and it's a pretty big, indefinite number in the church, uh, of the church, rather. 144 cubits, the wall was, in verse 17. Again, 12 times 12, God's election squared. This is definitely his planning, his purposes. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. Um, some, one version at least translates that as diamond. But either way, uh, it's quite difficult to translate um, things like a list of stones because of finding comparative words and what they meant at the time. Either way, it speaks of clarity, of purity, of transparency, and gold, of preciousness, and purity again. I won't read the entire list of... Um, list of the 12 stones um, that make up the walls or in, in setting the walls. But again, uh, speaking of preciousness, um, possibly referring to the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel on the effort um, thing that the um, high priest wore in the Old Testament, although they're not the same list, admittedly. But much more likely, he was thinking of this, it's Isaiah 54. O afflicted city. This is talking about Jerusalem at a time when, when Jerusalem was suffering and going through a, a very difficult time. And Jerusalem, or Zion, was often used as a representative of God's people. It was talking about the people of Israel when he talks about Jerusalem. You see the parallel with the new Jerusalem talking about the church. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, with your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and your walls of precious stones. This is God's promise to Jerusalem. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you you will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. The Lord's promise to an afflicted and oppressed Israel. Hundreds of years before the time of Christ. It's been his plan all along. His vision. Peter, sorry, verse 21. Twelve gates, twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. 
don't know where they got the oysters still. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. A walk that is pure, a walk that is transparent, we see in verse um, 21. Peter, who Jesus called a rock, wrote to the church and said, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You also, living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. See the plan? It's there all through the Bible. This plan to build this spiritual house, this new Jerusalem. What a glorious vision Jesus has, um, uh, John is given, that God and Jesus have for the church. You are a brick. You're a brick in the wall of the new Jerusalem. It's built of us. This is us. This is God's people. What's his city for? What's it supposed to do? 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God lives in it. It's indwelt by God. That promise, that intent, I will live among them. That's what God wants to do in your life, in our lives together. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. Guided by God, directed by God, the way ahead illuminated by him. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. Giving light to those outside, salt to the world. You are the light of the world. That's the only I am of Jesus that he also applies to us. He said, I am the light of the world. He also said, you are the light of the world. Sorry, I've just lost myself here a little. I'm too excited about the vision. Not only does it guide, but on no day will its gates ever be shut. It's always open, for there will be no night there the glory and the honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The splendour of kings, the glory and honour of nations being brought to it. Now, in the past, the church has seen that, that the nation should bring tribute to it. But that's not what it's seeing. This is a vision about people, remember. The glory of the nation, uh, splendor of kings, the glory of the nations, that's people. That's people being brought, souls being saved, being washed by what Jesus has done for them, being cleansed, being brought into the church. God's elect, he's chosen cleansed by Jesus, their names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why nothing impure or evil can come in. It's because it's the holy, those who have been cleansed by God. That's us. 
Once we've accepted Jesus, whatever we may think of ourselves, that's us, that's you and me, brought into this, this wonderful creation. This is God's vision. This is what God is making. This is what God sees on into eternity. This is his master plan. This is his high aim. You and me. I will dwell among them. It's what God wants. I will dwell among them. Let's pray.